chapter 9. The first two visions, 7 and 8, happened in the end of Belshazzar's reign at the end of the Babylonian Empire. The next two visions, chapter 9 and then 10 through 12, happens at the beginning of Darius the Mede, which was from chapter 6 of Daniel's reign. So all these visions are happening at the end of his life. All these visions are happening at the end of his life. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of Yahweh given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last for 70 years. So I turned to Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel remembers that the exile is only supposed to last for 70 years. This can be specifically seen in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11. Jeremiah 25, verse 11. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Jeremiah verse 20, chapter 29, verse 10. Second Chronicles 36, 21. Second Chronicles 36, 21. And Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Chapter 1, 1 through 12. Now, Daniel only has the Jeremiah passages. That's all he knows of, because Chronicles and Zechariah hasn't been written yet for him. But Jeremiah said that it would be 70 years that the exile would last. Now, most likely, this 70 years is symbolic, because seven and a multiple of seven represents completion. And we know that this number is symbolic because it had been 66 years since Daniel had been taken into exile and 47 years since Judah had been sacked by Nebuchadnezzar II. So yes, Daniel has been in exile for 69 years, or sorry, 66 years, but that's short of exile. And he's going to find out that very next year, remember, this is the first year of the Persian Empire. It is that year in 539 when the Persians conquered Babylon, took over. Later that year, Cyrus II is going to give an edict allowing all the Jews to return. So Daniel's praying to find out when the end of the exile is going to happen. A little does he know he's months away from it. The fact that the exile is going to be over for Daniel in 66 years, and for everybody else it's 47, and most likely 47 is the right number because that's the official beginning of exile for everybody in Judah, that is way short of 70. Even 66 isn't a precise number to 70. Those don't equal each other. And so one or two things are happening. Either it's symbolic or God in his mercy cut the exile short. However, it doesn't seem that God in his mercy cut the exile short, not that he's never done that before, but the fact that nobody ever mentions it's his mercy that brought it to an end. None of the post-exilic prophets say, oh, by the way, is God's mercy who allowed you this to cut short. Every time God shows his mercy, there's always a prophet or someone who points out this is the mercy of God. And yet that's never mentioned. So this points to the fact that the number is symbolic. That 70 is symbolic of just a period of time. Now, there is some preciseness to it because just like 400 years in slavery is symbolic or um, is a round number because they weren't actually literally there for 400 years, but it still was 400 years, not 40 years. God didn't say in 40 years you'll come out of Egypt. He said 400. It was close. 
So if God wanted to be in exile much longer, he would have said 700 years. So this still should be seen as we're under 100 years old. That's how long the exile is going to be. So they can know this is a symbolic number of completion, but God is also not using 70 to refer to like 700 years or whatever. Daniel wants to know, is this the time? It's been 66 years for me and 49 years for everybody else. And really, frankly, God, I'm kind of tired of living with these corrupt kings. That might be a little bit in his head. But really, probably what it really comes down to is he's getting close to death. And he's probably really anxious, like, I want to see the return in my lifetime. I want to see the return in my lifetime. So I prayed to Yahweh my God and confess, O Yahweh, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong, and we have been wicked and have rebelled, and we have turned away from our commands and laws, and we have not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name, and to our kings or princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel was a righteous man. Remember, there's two kinds of righteousness. There's the literal theological righteousness of you literally have no sin. And God makes it very clear, for all have sinned and fallen short of glory of God, and there's not one who is righteous, no, not one. But there's also the practical living it out faith righteousness. And faith righteousness is the idea of what I talked about, blameless, that I pursue God in obedience, but I know I can't perfectly obey, so that when I do disobey, I repent quickly. Because repentance itself is obedience. And that righteousness is what Daniel is. And there really was nothing. Daniel's not perfect, and he's messed up. But the reality is, his sin is nowhere close to what would bring them into exile. He, has, he doesn't what we call exile sin. He was not an idolater. He wasn't cheating the poor in any kind of a way. He wasn't oppressing people. So he's not responsible for the exile he personally. And yet he identifies himself with the Jews and their sins. And he says, we have sinned. This is foreign to us. Even me, I've studied the Bible for a long time, and I have a really good idea of their corporate way of thinking. And even that still feels so foreign to me. Like, well, that's not right. They didn't actually do it. Why would you do that? You... Because as Americans, we have become so individualistic in the way that we think. I didn't do that. You know when the teacher punishes the whole class for a few, and you're like, that's not fair. Okay, what is fair? This is what I tell my students. It's fair because you all sat there in silence and didn't stop them. Because to watch evil go and not stop it, that's one of the reasons that God took them into exile. Well, that was one of the reasons that God took them in exile. was not, doing, not just doing the evil, but watching the evil and allowing it to happen and not stepping in. But this is foreign to us. And, and even when people are like, well, the church did this to me, and this is why I hate the church and God, and you're like, but I didn't do that. My, my, uh, my church didn't do that to you. And that's our first knee-jerk reaction. And that's not how people in the East think. Even today, if you go over to the Middle East, or you go especially like China and Japan, there's a corporate solidarity. And they think all the time what is good for the community. Now, unfortunately, they go to the extreme where the individual really doesn't matter at all. 
for the sake of the community. We go to the extreme where the community doesn't matter at all for the sake of the individual. Both are wrong. If we can just kind of pull each other to the center somehow, we might be better people. But that's not going to happen. We're human. That's the idea here, that he understands this. Now, knows too that these prayers are in the Bible. And there's something we can learn from it. I'm not saying we should go all like Eastern extreme where the individual person has no value at all or no worth. And I'm not saying that every Easterner views that like that. But you can see this in extreme, especially Islam. But there is something that we can learn. We can be pulled more to the center in the way that we think. And there is a sense that we're part of the body. And there's in the, remember there's this book... Um, is it Stephen Covey, Seven Habits, Habits of Highly Effective People? Or is it, there might be a, just a leadership book where one of the marks, they, they watched all these leaders throughout time, and one of the marks of a great leader was that they, every time they were responsible for something successful, they gave credit to their team. And whenever they failed miserably, even if it wasn't the leader's fault, he took ownership for it or she took ownership for it. And that was one of the marks of a great leader. And there's this sense of, like, we are part of a team. And we succeed together and we fail together. And there is a certain sense that I'm a product of the culture, even if I wasn't specifically doing it. And there are times that I do feel like that, like America is not looking really great right now. And sometimes I really ask God, like, what should I be doing? Like, I feel so hope helpless to change anything in the political realm. And, and I don't want to be an activist. I don't think that's beneficial. And I really don't want to be in politics. <laughs> And so the question is like, I don't want to just sit back and be unhappy about what's happening or be able to, I'm, one of God's gifts to me is I'm really good at seeing cracks and everything, even though I'm not maybe very good at fixing all the cracks. And so, but I don't like that. I don't like being able to see cracks and yet feeling helpless to do anything about it. And so the best thing I can do is probably just like tamper down my complaining a little bit, not that I always succeed there. And so there is a little bit of guilt here that, I'm not the one who's jacked up America, so to speak. At least I don't feel like it. Yet I do feel somewhat responsible for not fixing it in a major way or not knowing how to. And whether that's legit or not, I think that's a little taste of what corporate solidarity means. And I feel like there is a little bit that that is from God, is the image of God. But I also am warning, too, that we can easily abuse that and take it too far because humans are good at doing that as well. And so we got to ride that line between guilting ourselves and not being able to fix the world because we can't. But at the same time being like, well, can't do anything, not my problem. And that's not healthy either. And I think that's where we need to see Daniel. Is I don't think Daniel's taking complete ownership like I didn't do enough. But at the same time, he was a part of that community. And he finds solidarity there. And he confesses the sins of Israel as if he's a part of it. Verse 7, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. And the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. He acknowledges the shame. There's nothing wrong with shame. It's what you do with the shame that makes it unhealthy. You should feel shame and guilt for your sins and what you've done. Now, if you take that shame and you allow it to eat away at you and destroy your self-worth, that's not healthy. 
But if you can take that shame and confess it to God and allow him to deal with it and be able to grow and move on to that, that is healthy shame. That's healthy guilt. And that's what Daniel's doing. He acknowledges that there is shame for being an Israelite from in his generations. Yet he's giving it to God. And he's saying, this is yours to deal with. O Lord, we and our king, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. And even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed Yahweh our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants and the prophets. And all of Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing us upon us great disaster. So he acknowledges we deserve what happened. You warned us in the Deuteronomic law that this is happening. And it did happen as you predicted. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as is written in the law of Moses, all the disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of Yahweh our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. Yahweh did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for Yahweh our God is righteous and everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. So you warned us, and we didn't heed the warning, and you judged us. Therefore, you're completely righteous in judging us, because one, you told us this would happen in Deuteronomy, and we ignored it. Two, we did actually sin and violate the law, and we knew in the law what the penalty was, and we chose to do it anyways. And three, you warned us through the prophets, and we ignored it. You're a righteous God. You're a righteous God. Now, O Yahweh, or O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned and we have done wrong. O Lord, keep, keep in keeping with your, all your righteous acts. Turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem. Now notice, as long as the exile goes on, the wrath of God is still implemented. I mean, you're, they're still in timeout. And timeout is still punishment. And so he's asking in their mercy, please take away your anger. Okay, I don't want to be in timeout anymore. Your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. O sins, our sins and iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. The sanctuary of the temple that doesn't exist anymore. Give ear, O God, and hear, open your eyes, and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. That's a powerful statement. We, we don't ask of you because we deserve it. Like, I deserve a sucker. Like, we don't make requests. We make requests because you're merciful despite what we deserve. As my principal usually says, when people are like, that's not fair. He's like, fair is all of us in hell. That's, we, we don't make requests because we deserve it. We make requests because you're merciful and you keep us out of it. Oh Lord, listen. Oh Lord, have forgive. Oh Lord, hear and act. 
For your sake, O oh my God, do not delay, because your city, your people, bear your name. And like Moses, he appeals back to the character of God and saying, hey, the longer we're in exile, the longer we're not doing well, that speaks something to the nations about who you are. Now, notice he uses the Exodus theme. Daniel is seeing a coming out of exile like a second Exodus. And the prophets are going to pick up on this big time when we get to them. 